Jake, you don't own any Bitcoin, do you? Are you a secret billionaire? Do you own a bunch of Bitcoin? I would not be doing this podcast with you if I had Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, I really like you. But, uh... I remember we had a chance back in 2008, 2009. I don't know when the phenomena came out. And I saw these Bitcoins and there was this article and you could buy one. I, I thought, oh, $50 for an imaginary currency. Who would do that? And then I remembered I would do that. So do you remember <laughs> the original Bitcoin? We nope. raised enough money to pay all of my bills and my mortgage for a whole year. It was the original Bitcoin is Beanie Babies. Oh, yes. Yes. I'm trying to go back in my mind of all the schemes we had to, um, <laughs> to, to find funding. Beanie Babies <laughs> was definitely one of the most memorable definitely. and profitable. <laughs> yeah. And profitable. Yeah. This is a podcast where two old friends, both Canadian, one black and one white, and both men, explore what it looks like to adopt the mindset of an inclusive society. Instead of asking, how do we get there? Jake and Chris discuss, what does it look like to act as if we're already there? Welcome to the Disorienting Dilemma. So Beanie Babies are not cryptocurrency by any stretch, but there was a period in 96, 97, 98, there was a bit of a craze. Now, that mar the economy was doing really well. The first bubble hadn't happened, let alone 2008. And so people were collecting these things and they were they had little tags and there was little tag protectors and the whole thing was just evolving and it was being driven by an excessive amount of capital out there. And so people were buying these Beanie Babies, grabbing them up from stores, getting them. And there was, a for whatever, there seemed to be sort of a production shortage and there weren't enough to satisfy demand, you know, the basic rubric of capitalism. And uh, we lived in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where trends tend to arrive about, what, a decade later, I would <laughs> well, say. I'm still here, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I've seen pictures of my dad when he's growing up in the fifties or sixties. I swear it looks like the twenties or thirties. Uh, yeah. it's just, thank you it's... for alienating all of our listeners <laughs> yeah. in Halifax. That's I'm Chris from Halifax. I'm Don wearing Jarvis. a shirt. This is Halifax. I'm very proud of our resistance to change. Anyways. So <laughs> in Halifax, Nobody knew about this craze. I happened to because I came from Toronto. I'd moved from Toronto and somebody in Toronto was doing it because they had relatives in the United States and they were buying these and selling them on eBay. So we walk into the store. I remember the first time I walked into the store and saw this bunch of Beanie Babies. And I said, uh, how, uh, do you have any more of these? She said, which one are you after? I said, well, this one, Izzy. You remember Izzy, the lizard one? Yep. <laughs> I'm embarrassed that I do <laughs> remember each of them by name and can close my eyes and see them. But go on. Okay. Tell me more about this. This is so embarrassing. So, so Izzy? I, I said, Izzy, she said, yeah, uh, is that do you, one or two? I said, how many do you have? She said, I don't know. I've got a couple bags. I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll take a, a couple here. And uh, we bought a selection. Goldfish. Goldie was the goldfish. A bunch of others. There's one unicorn one, Bent went, went home, called my friend and she said, you want to list it. You want to do this. They'll send a money order that they can track. You get that first and then you go to the post office and you have to put on this label because you're shipping it through customs and yada, yada, yada. So I did all that and listed it and bing, somebody bought it like right off the bat, a couple of them. And we sold out our entire stock of six or seven. And uh, I thought, 
well, this might be the easiest money ever made because while we bought them at $8.50, $8.50, we were selling them anywhere between $15 and $150. So I, went, I hustled back two days later to that store. Yeah, do you have any more of those Izzy's? Yeah, how many do you need? You had a couple bags? Yeah, I'll take them. Oh, okay. Do you have any more? Yeah, we've got this, this, and this. I'll buy them all. So <laughs> put them all in the credit card, went home. They sold out that weekend. Now it's a bit of an obsession, right? Do you remember our... So there was the one Beanie Baby, Maple. The Maple. The Cana Canadian Maple. The white bear with the red maple leaf on it. And yep. you can only buy in Canada. And then you convinced me. I did. be all judgy. I did. No, I'll own it. Let's double down. You cannot get maple anywhere else in the world. And we just happened to cross... I don't know, maybe a hundred or whatever the number was. It was a huge, a bag or a box of maple bears. I, Jake, I think it was five. I feel, I felt like a lot more in my head. <laughs> when I remember it now, I just remember we got like the, the stash of maples. There, there was, what's, what's a maple worth in Canada? Nothing. So not, we needed to go. Yeah. $8 and 50 cents, the same as all the other crap ones. But in the US. We had to go cross border with these maples. Do you remember this oh, yeah. trip? Yeah, we did. So we decided to go down to Boston. We got we got in that green van, drove down to Boston. We had five maples. And what the listeners don't understand is they were worth $150 US. So these five maples represented $1,000 Canadian. And that was worth going to Boston. And so we got in the car and drove from Halifax, Nova Scotia to Boston. What is that? 15, 16 hours? Something like that, yeah. Something like that. And... Uh, <laughs> We drove right to the center, right downtown, and Quin parked. Quincy Market. We're sitting right there in the in the middle of the square. Quincy Market. That's right. Psst, psst. Hey, wanna buy wanna buy a maple? <laughs> it did feel like drugs. Felt like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Didn't sell one of them. Apparently, nope. people just strolling by two guys selling Beanie Babies in the market wasn't all that reassuring. Yeah, and we just. But what was interesting was we we decided to volunteer at a soup kitchen because we were both developing this nonprofit in in Halifax and looking for ways to involve volunteers and do it better and do it smarter. And we were in a big American city and we we went to this, I can't remember the name of the soup kitchen. It was a Baptist church on a park right in downtown. Yeah. And we went in and we walked through the door and they said, you're here to volunteer. We said, yes. And they put us in the kitchen and we washed dishes for, I don't know, an hour and a half and helped clean up. And then when it was done, it was like, thank you. And we left and we walked around the park a little bit and saw some of the guys who had been at the soup kitchen. And we were just, just trying to take it all in and learn as much as possible. Do you, do you remember much of that? Nope. Nope. I don't. I I, I, re I remember a trip. I remember going. I as you're talking, I remember comparing it to you know like going on vacation and then working while on vacation. Like yeah, we, yeah. We yeah. were. It was pretty helpful actually to go there and to experience it. Just walking in off the street, they were welcoming enough to let yeah. us just come in. But in trying to walk around after, when I think about it and I remember not being able to interact with the people we just saw at the meal. Like yeah. you just had a shared experience kind of, uh, you were in the same place at the same time anyway, much, not much of a shared experience washing dishes, but you were in the same building maybe an hour before and there was no way 
to even connect. Like they wouldn't recognize you. You didn't know right. them. You didn't talk to them. It just felt very different than what we were doing at the Sunday suppers. Well, one of the reasons that we did it differently at the Sunday suppers is we were both kind of on this journey to figure out how we could better understand our beliefs and our belief system with other people. At the Sunday suppers before we came, they had made a few changes. A typical men's mission is you get a number of the guys maybe who are staying at the men's mission to go on rotation to serve the meal and everybody else lines up. You have the meal and then those same guys who are actually at the men's mission clean up afterwards. So the Sunday suppers wasn't connected to a men's mission. It was just sort of standalone. The little ladies auxiliary, they would cook lasagna and then all the guys would line up and they would scoop it out as fast as they can and they would clean up. And the organizers kept some of that. But then you and I said, why don't we, we've got a lot of volunteers because you and I were always hustling out with churches and other organizations. You should come down, cook some food because we needed their food come down mm -hmm. and serve, but we needed something for them to do. So we, we asked the ladies if they would mind doing their work around prepping the food in the kitchen and then put it on the, um, there's this window that we serve from and we get all the volunteers lined up and they get active because we knew that the more involved people were in the experiences, in the experience, the more they could own it, which we didn't get a chance to do at the one in Boston. Yeah. I think prior to that, you're right. It was all about sort of technical work. Uh, there was no relational. Remember, we we set up kind of volunteers in a couple different ways. You could be a technical volunteer or more relational volunteer. Oh my gosh! Like yes, could, that's right. You could be there, and it was okay. I think now we we would talk about meeting people at their highest level of contribution. But at that yeah. time, we were using different language, yeah, and we were talking about it to say, look, if you just want to be part of the machine that gets the food across the window, so that's you're very important. In the kitchen, yeah. You're plating. You're your, uh, maybe you just show up, drop off a casserole and you don't stay. All of yep. that's okay. Yep. But if you want that next level experience, you're taking the food from the window to the table, interacting. This is where the, the relationships are. You're going to meet people. You're going to get their name. Yep. They're going to ask you to come back. Uh, they're going to say, uh, do you have any salt? And you're going to remember who, who needed salt and you're going to go right. back to them. Right. Exactly. You're going to get to experience waiting on people, this wait, this restaurant kind of experience of going back and forth. And then you're going to sit down and eat at the same tables where you, that was kind of the, the game changer, I think. Right. It was a shared experience. It was a meal that we had together. We all had different roles to play. And then we introduced a brief at the, at the beginning and we right. didn't know it at the time, but it's called framing. It's the, it's the way that you create some context for an experience that someone's having so that they understand what kind of meaning would be appropriate to bring to that experience. Because during the sense-making process, that's where we bring meaning to experience. Nothing in and of itself means anything. It only means something when we decide what it means. So two people can have the same experience, and you and I talk about this all the time, so this is just mm -hmm. for everybody who's tracking along uh, on the podcast. But Two people can have exactly the same experience with food being spilled at a restaurant. Yeah. And somebody can say, oh, this is terrible. Things go wrong, blah, blah, blah. And the other person can say, oh, my gosh, you are you okay? I, I, I was a waiter, too, and sometimes it's a bad day. Let me help you with that. Don't worry about it. And they position themselves as a consoling person, and this wasn't against them. And they take an empathetic perspective of the other person. They become somebody who contributes something valuable in terms of 
understanding being understandable. Whereas the other person is offended and everything bad happens to me. And you, I think you may have done this intentionally, but all that happened was food spilled. Both yeah. of those individuals decided, well, this is what that must mean. And then in light of that meeting, what I must do. So that's sense-making and framing is a way to kind of guide the sense-making process. Yeah, we, I think that's right. And the, and the slight difference about the briefing, the briefing happened before service, but not before you were there. So you may have shown up at 4.30. Right. We may eat at 5 and we might brief at about 10 to 5. So you're that's already right. engaged exactly right. yeah. in doing some of the technical work. You've wow. already set up the chairs. You've uh, swept the gym or done all of that kind of stuff. Everything is prepped, which is a bit of a different time for a brief because usually you say, well, we have to do it at the very beginning. This right. is where I get my instructions. This is where right. I get what I'm supposed to do. But in this way, people are already doing something. The setup right. was underway. The machine was well-oiled. So then you could say, well, is there any real reason to have to stop the work, to go into a separate room? And that's where we started to really do this framing for people, what you're going to see, how you're going to feel, uh, what we want you to think about. You were really framing up their experience. It wasn't just about, here's a list of tasks that need to be done. Right. And it also accounted for the fact that when people volunteer, they tend to not show up right on the exact time because it's voluntary. Yep. You're just helping. So- I'm going to be a few minutes late. That's normal. Again, uh, the phrase that you use, Jacob, and this one that we talk about all the time, meeting people at the highest level of expectation means trust people to be who they are and you'll never be disappointed. So mm -hmm. if people are showing up, I learned that one from you. So if people are showing up for the first time. <laughs> but I, I usually mean it in a very contrarian way. <laughs> but, but, but it's still true. So, yeah, because now I'm not superimposing on you what I think an ideal volunteer should do and should act like. I'm like, you know what? They've never done this before. They're probably coming in. They've got a lot of other things going on. They're going to be a little bit late. So let's do the brief a little bit later. Let's mm -hmm. give those who show up on time a chance to just get active, get their kind of feet wet, get active. And then we would do the brief and we'd do what you said, which is talk about what we're going to do, how we're going to get it done, but the why it matters. That was the really important part of the brief. Yeah. I mean, and we were doing that at the Sunday suppers, but we were doing that when we had drop-in centers at the beginning. Yep, that's right. We would have a, a brief before we would start. We would do it when we had our, remember our urban plunges, the oh listening walks. And yes. we, we did all the, but everything always had a brief and a, and a debrief. And debrief. Yeah. Yeah. And then during, during the time we would always check in with people. Like mm -hmm. the check-in is really important because we wanted to know, have you volunteered ever before? Most people would say they never, they don't, maybe once a year or something like that around Christmas. But there would be people who had volunteered a lot somewhere else and treating them like a first timer would be, wasn't the best way to go. So we would use the check-in to kind of figure out where people were at in their journey of volunteering. It was interesting how people would make, so as you listen to each other, in the briefing and debriefing and people are talking about what they're learning, it actually forms an interesting connection between folks as well. So it's not just That's between, uh, there's sort of a group connection piece. I mean, my brother and his wife met at the Sunday Supper. I mean, part of this became a regular community, even in yep. the briefing, the folks yep. who would come together, it was not just to do the work. The work was done. It was not only to connect with folks, but it was a learn. It became a learning community. People were journeying along together in yep. many ways. So, yep. 
That was an interesting feature to see even the volunteers begin to see it to transition from I'm coming here to help or make a difference to something more profound. By coming here, I think I'm becoming different. Yes. And that's the move from what we call stage one to stage two. But to do that really well, you do need the brief and the debrief. So the just to explain what we mean by the brief, I remember once we would go down to the Lighthouse Mission. We would go there and we would meet in this room and I would do this talk. What we're going to do, we're going to go to this mission. We're going to serve a meal. Here's how we're going to do it. Everybody's going to get a job. I need five people to hand out meals. I need someone to hand out pepper and someone to hand out salt. And they put up their hands and I'll say, yeah. I know we could put it on the tables, but let me explain. All of us are going to have something to do. We've all got a role to play here. So your mm-hmm. pepper, your salt, your hot sauce. There were uh, some folks who would hand out the, you know, carry the juice and somebody to follow along with the cups behind them, that kind of thing. So we'd get through all of that. And then I would say, look, uh, let me tell you why we're doing this. We are not here to make a difference really in hunger. Uh, it's mm-hmm. one meal once a week. And we're not going to make a dent. We're not actually going to contribute to nutrition very much. This food has been cooked at least once already, maybe twice. It's fine. It's edible, but it's not, we're not changing lives on a nutritional basis here. And we're not here to fix people. The poor are not a problem to be solved. We're not going to make them look like us, talk like us, walk like us. We're not going to bring them to the dream of the middle class. That's not what's going on. These men are told all week long, you have no value You have nothing to contribute. Get off my street. Get away from the front of my store. People will cross the street to avoid them. If they say hello, most people walking by will pretend they didn't even hear them. Whereas if I walk by and say hello, even a stranger, they'd say, oh, hey, how you doing? Even if I don't know them. But homeless people don't get that. Or they assume there's an ask coming. Yeah, that's right. Or there's there's just something to be avoided. right? Right. So here for two hours, we're going to treat them like they just checked into the Ritz-Carlton. We are going to give them the best service they've ever done. We're going to smile if they want hot sauce. We're not going to ask them how much we're going to run and we're going to get whatever they need. We're going to treat them like they are VIPs. That's what we're doing here today. We are telling these men, you have value and you're worth my time. Mm -hmm. I'm here because of you. Now, on the other hand, if you're ready you're going to get a gift. And here's the gift. These men who obviously by, you know, standards, economic standards, whatnot, contribute nothing to the GDP. Mm-hmm. But everybody in this room probably has a job and probably obsesses about your job status, your business cards, your office, the chair you may or may not get because HR is giving you a bonus, your car, the house you live in, the clothes you wear, how much you buy, how much you sell, how pretty you are, how fast you are, all of these things all week long, we are reminded this is where your true value is. Do more, sell more, buy more, make more. Right. But for a couple hours, these guys are going to remind you that their humanity isn't rested in any of those things and they have value. So is your value really rested in those things too? Because at the end of your life, if you're in a pine box at the front of whatever room, You do not want somebody standing up there at the front of the room saying, I'll miss Bob. He was a great guy. He was always under budget, never stole office supplies, and he was pretty well dressed. See you, Bob. (laughs) That's like the worst. (laughs) See you, Bob. It's like the worst eulogy ever. You want somebody to go up to the front of that room and see their heart break because of how much you meant to them in their life. The things, the intangible things that you contributed out of who you fundamentally were 
That right. will never be replaced. That's what you want your eulogy to be about. So why do we obsess about these all things? The, you know, we're not the clothes we wear. We're not the car we drive. So why do we obsess about it? So for two hours today, these guys are going to remind you of that if you're open to it. And I would do that every single week. Same brief every single week. I think framing it makes people have a thoughtful experience instead of just getting caught up in the task. Yeah. When you're working with groups, though, I wonder, we get busy. Your yep. point that people don't show up on time. Oh, yeah. So you yep. move the brief. Do you ever find that it's just easier to skip it? Listen, it's it's a really cool concept, Chris. I totally get it. Uh, but we had a great volunteer experience. We didn't do the brief, and uh, it was still a good time. What do you say there? <laughs> I say, oh, great. Well, uh, to be and to be honest, to be perfectly honest, that's our biggest hurdle to get past in working with companies. Companies tend to, if a large company wants to do employee volunteering, one of the things that we encourage them to do is to build out a network of, they call them champions or ambassadors or, or volunteer leaders. And these are individuals who aren't paid to do this, but they love volunteering so much. They're what we call stage two or stage three out of three stages. And they've been pretty practiced. They have the energy, the enthusiasm, the experience, and they can lead. But they may not have ever done a brief or a debrief. They may have volunteered for 20 years, 300 hours a year, but they they may not have intentionally ever been shown how to frame experiences so they can move from a transactional to something transformative. So typically, it's skipped because the last thing any of us want to do is get a bunch of our colleagues in a semicircle and say, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to get it done. And let me remind us all why this matters. Public speaking is the number one fear ahead of death. And people don't want to do it. They don't want to do it if the senior vice president is standing over there. Like that's right. really terrible. And when you get there and you and the nonprofit is like, okay, you go over here, you go over here, you go over here, like what happened to us in Boston. For the champion to say, oh, can I bring everybody back together? Sometimes they're in completely different buildings. The whole thing, it is, it is the biggest hurdle. Where people run off. And because we just want to do the task. Okay, well, the job is done. I'm going to run off. Yeah. Right. And we tend to think in terms of productivity, how much can we get done? How efficient can we be? How many walls can we paint? How much dirt can we move? And that that cannot be the point. So I think that's pretty cool to hear that you struggle with the same thing I do. People have a really <laughs> cool experience and they'll say, I really appreciate the way you facilitated that meeting. I really appreciated the way we were able to, you came in and you helped us hear from each other and we sat there and I said, yeah, there's, so there's no magic. You can do this too. You're committed to just bringing people together in a space where we hear from each other. You will spend more time listening than you will talking. So if you want to participate by listening, when it comes to you, and we're going to make sure that we make space to hear from everyone by moving around the circle, you can just say pass and continue to participate by listening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we're going to go around twice to make sure that we've heard from you at least once, and then give you an opportunity to allow people to uh, make sense of that together. The debrief part tends to be the one that people skip out because they're just busy, tired, or think, we'll uh, send an email around. We'll, we'll just get people's opinion later. How did it go? Right. We'll send you a survey. We'll send you a survey. 
but then you're only talking to the person who organized it. You're not talking to each other. And so for us, it's constantly battling saying, you're not telling me how this went. You're talking to each other. Right. I already know about the briefing. I already know about the debrief. I have already had this experience 400 times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want you to talk to each other about why this matters. Yeah, that's interesting. And so for everybody listening, the brief typically takes about 10, maybe 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. We like to involve the nonprofit if they're able to share, but that's not always the case. So we do a little bit of research. But the most important thing, and I'm in, interested to do a compare and contrast here with restorative practice because it's not uh, the the talking circle isn't exactly after the same uh, thing with the framing. It's still framing, right. but it's slightly different. We encourage people to do a little bit of research about the organization, obviously, but we ask them to try and personify the thing, whatever the thing is. I need because I need to have. For this to work really well for me, to, to for me to have empathy, I need to be able to mentally picture who we're helping or see them. Now, men's mission is perfect because I'm actually going to go see another human being's face. The human being's face is critical. I'm not going to develop empathy or insight from a bullet list. So I, I do need that proximity. And if I can't see people, right. like let's say we're going to work with a women's shelter, well, we're not going to jump in there when the women who are at risk are all present necessarily. So you need to tell me a story about Heather, who is at the women's shelter and what she's facing and what she's doing. I, human beings are incredibly good at mentalizing or visualizing. And this works very well. I mean, otherwise movies Nobody would be interested in movies. We can imagine ourselves in another person's shoes if we have enough markers for that. And then the second part is the significance of the task. Mm -hmm. And this is what sets us up for a great disorienting dilemma. Because if we talk about task, like I did, we're not here to solve the poor. They're not a problem to be solved. We're not going to fix them. We're not going to make a dent in hunger. That's not why we're here. We're here so that they know that you want to tell them that you're worth their time and that you're going to receive a gift. The disorienting dilemma came from people afterwards going, what gift are you talking about? I don't understand. Like remembering my humanity. I, I mean, I, I got what you said. It made sense, but I don't, I'm not connecting the dots and that's because it's disorienting. You walk in fully focused on making the world better and making a difference. And in that brief, the disorienting dilemma is this is about you. Wait, what? Yeah. At first, that you can't even process that. The reason the disorienting dilemma is so critical is because when your expectations do not line up with your experience, right? My expectation is I'm going to go, I'm going to make a difference, going to help people. The experience is you're here to receive a gift from men who are homeless. Uh, okay. In that moment, if you're listening, there's a chemical called acetylcholine that's secreted in your brain. It's a neuromodulator and it's secreted in a part of your brain and your brain becomes a little bit more malleable and your neural pathways start to get anxious and connect with each other because your brain is not set up for that reality. Your experience and your expectations don't line up. So your brain's going to try and resolve that and it resolves it by actually changing the way you process the world around you. Remember a few minutes ago, we were talking about nothing means anything. We decide what things mean. That's that process where we see the world, perceive it, and then how our brain is wired determines how we see the world. And in this moment, you become pretty open 
to new ways of thinking because you're curious and you don't know what it means, which is why framing is incredibly important. Yeah. Oh, and you can actually see that activity in the brain when that the, yeah. that chemical is released and those pathways, those dendrites are just flaring. It looks like branches of a It's of the a weirdest thing. Or, yeah. So when you're talking about, is there something similar like in a restorative way, in a restorative approach, it's exactly the same. So we, when done well, people know before they come in to a space what they're going to be asked or what they're going to be thinking about. So it's more of a sharing. So you're framing ahead of time slightly. Mm -hmm. So if I were letting people know that we were going to have a debrief, a restorative debrief, I'm going to invite you back to share with each other something that you experienced today that you didn't expect and you want to learn more about. I would tell them that's the question before we come to the debrief. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. you're, so you're going through the experience, kind of knowing that we're, we're you're primed. Uh, you're going to be looking for something, and so when we get back, people already know that that's there's not a surprise. You want to limit the surprise. Mm-hmm. You want to make it as comfortable as it is for people to participate. Okay. And so, if you know that before you get back together, that you're going, there's going to be an opportunity to talk. You don't have to take it, but you're going to have one. And it's going to be in an orderly way. Then, then you can hear from each other and start to compare and contrast what other people experienced. And it's sort of a, a shared learning model. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Because that does get us to the debrief at the end. And the one that we've adopted, we want to create at the very end this chance for cognitive dissonance. So, so the mm-hmm. framing, we set people up. We don't, I think that's a good way to say it, Jake. We don't want to surprise people, like throw them off and make them uncomfortable. But at the same time, we want to trigger the acetylcholine yeah. by creating that disorienting dilemma and just say, what do you think that means? Okay, we're going to go have the experience. Let's see what let's see what you do with that. And then at the end, we get people in a semicircle, again, talking tactics for a second, a little yeah. bit before everybody leaves because everybody's just going to wander away, right? Like you, I, I think you and I just sort of had, oh, that's all the dishes. I guess we'll go. We were some of the last to leave that yeah. uh, men's mission in Boston. But you bring everybody together and we just ask them two questions. What did you experience? Mm-hmm. And was it what you expected? Right. Now, you know, at the end, most people, when we do a men's mission type thing, or even at the Sunday suppers, the first response, and it was weird for people to do a debrief. They're like, okay, we're going to do a survey. You want to know how well we thought you ran it, the quality of the food. Was there enough parking? Did I have advance notice? All of this kind of objective qualifying rating type of thing. None of that. We just said, what did you experience? Was it what you expected? Because the debrief is about who you are in the moment. And people would start by saying, well, I I think uh, we had enough bread, but maybe next time we need more. Okay, that's great. We'll make a note of that. Could you give me an answer that starts with, I experienced, but I expected? And they would say, oh, okay. Um, well, they were all really polite and nice, like really, really nice. I never followed that up with, well, what did you expect? Because the inference is, because I expected them to be subhuman, scary, freak out, like just, <laughs> which tends right. to be like the unknown other kind of thing. We just attribute all of these attributes, especially homeless people, which you said at the top right. of the call, we're trying to a- avoid, you know, yeah. the ask or that kind of thing. And these men were just, Nice, like really, really nice. I laughed. Some of them were funny. They were so kind. Uh, like, and that is the number one response we get. But now people leave 
in their sense-making process and they're thinking, what did I experience? Was what that, what did I expect? Because now that's their story and they're in their own story. They're actually, you actually are asked to consider you as a character in this story outside of the story, which is a, it's kind of an interesting way to deal with any cognitive dissonance that you may be experiencing. I think there was one other piece that we did to help people continue in their learning was to invite them back. So every week, oh, yeah, that's right. we would Very invite incredible. them back to keep learning, to keep journeying, to keep exploring what this felt like. And so we would bump into folks who said, well, I just came, uh, I came with my, uh, my group from work. We come once a year and we bring our casseroles. And we'd say, thank you for that. If you want to come back on your own next week, you're welcome to do that too. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, yep. oh, yep. I didn't know I I didn't know I could just show up on my own. Well, you can, or you can come with your group, and we love to have you in either way. But uh, if you want to keep this and to invite people back or to give them their next level of engagement uh, yep. was really key in the uh, debrief. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And you would see people who came as a group start to outpace each other, and that was okay. People were eventually at different stages, and we were trying to make lots of room, and so going back to the very beginning, it didn't matter if you never came out of the kitchen and you were most comfortable washing dishes. We needed that too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I walked around with milk for years. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly busy work, but I the milk man. Yeah. Just walk around with, with milk. What are you doing? Or the real, the real skill was to walk around with an empty pitcher I'm just on my way. And as you go into the kitchen, fill it up and you see the volunteer who's kind of frozen. You don't know. Oh, here, I got you a, a pitcher of water. Right. Got you a pitcher right. of milk. And they just needed to be prompted to get back into exactly. service because it was yep. a little overwhelming. So kind of float around with the empty pitcher. It's a life we hack. should. We should do another podcast on little hacks for how to work with volunteers because uh, there's a whole bunch of interesting ones. That when we could when share. you see them terrified on the wall, how to get them back in the game. That's right. That's a good one. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> anyway, it's fun. All right. So for everybody listening, Beanie Babies had nothing to do with this other than it got us to Boston where we had an experience. And it was really eye-opening, I think, for me and for you. Obviously, we've talked about it a bunch of times since then. But um, just to understand the, the absolute importance of the brief and the debrief and checking in with people during the event versus skipping it, but how easy and how much everybody who's leading the event probably just wants to get to the work. Like, let's just get this done. Let's volunteer and let's, let's go to the next thing. Mm -hmm. But two wildly different experiences for people and journeys that people are, are on because of that. Yeah. hundred percent. That Beanie Babies, it's a great memory. I'm going to go home and see if I can find any in the... <laughs> You in should a box, I, I was, in box in the basement or something. I'm sure I still have some around. This podcast is brought to you by the RW Institute, produced by Daniel Parker, recorded remotely in Los Angeles from Baltimore, Maryland, and Halifax, Nova Scotia. Be sure to subscribe so you can keep up with the conversation. Care to react? Submit your comments at rw.institute or on the comment feature where you're listening now.